Let us bow our heads for the prayers for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of Psalms. It's Psalm 148 which can be found on page 571 of your pew Bible. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds which cannot be passed. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women alike, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his faithful, for the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson comes from the 13th chapter of John. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples on the night he was betrayed. His betrayal is already um, occurring. And so we pick up there as Jesus, even in the midst of that betrayal, is still teaching his disciples. This is John 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said... Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the process of writing a sermon, I will confess to you, can sometimes lead to some pretty bizarre internet searches. My most memorable ones have usually started out as a quest to find some random quote that I may vaguely remember reading once but can't seem to find uh, in any of the books on my bookshelves. And I'm usually pretty sure of the author or the person who said it, and I usually have a little cluster of words in mind that may or may not be accurate. 
But hope springs eternal. So I open up the old Google and I throw those words in and I hit enter and it almost never works. Uh, It's like searching for a needle in a haystack if that haystack covered the state of Delaware, right? Um, And then at other times you'll throw in a search and you hit pay dirt almost immediately. And that is what happened this week when I Googled the phrase, love test, okay? So you might imagine what a Google search of the words love test might pull up. Every terrible quiz that's ever run in Cosmopolitan magazine, or even worse, 17, which somehow still exists, right? 17 has got to be like 75 or 80 by this time, you know? But the one that kind of jumped out at me was, this was the title, 12 Relationship Tests That Will Reveal How Much Your Partner Loves You. Bingo. Exactly what I was hoping for and looking for, and then I opened it. (laughs) You really want to know if your boyfriend or girlfriend loves you, this site asked, then just try this. This was the first one. Buy a pet they are allergic to. Tell them you are quitting your job and moving to Paris tomorrow and see what they do. Call them a bunch of times in the middle of the night, then do not respond when they call you back. Stay up all night asking them deep, meaningful relationship questions when they have a huge work event the next morning. Now, these are not love tests. These are just mean, you know? A better title for this article would have been 12 Ways to Infuriate Someone who probably loved you before you did this to them. (laughs) Now, I doubt I need to say this to you, but these tests are not biblical. They have no biblical warrant or biblical basis. They bear no relation to the love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, love that is patient, love that is kind, love that is not arrogant or rude, love that does not insist on its own way. Love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Something that has to torture its object before it calls itself love is not love. Now that is not to say, however, that love cannot be tested. In the passage that we read this morning in John 13, Jesus gives the disciples a love test, a different kind of love test, but a love test all the same. You say you love me, you say you are my disciples, Jesus says, well here here is how you know. It is how you love one another. My commandment is that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. You are treating each other with contempt and disrespect, Jesus says, then you're not really loving me. If you are not speaking the truth to one another in love, Jesus says, then you're not really loving me. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. And it can be a tall order. One of my seminary professors likes to tell a story about a little girl in a Sunday school class. They were talking about heaven, and the teacher turns to the little girl in the circle and says, Susan, what about you? Do you want to go to heaven someday? And Susan looks around the room, and she said, not if all these people are going to be there. (laughs) Harsh but funny, right? 
But that is sort of the picture that I have in my mind when I think about the disciples around that table in the, at the Last Supper. When he gives them this new commandment, they're all kind of in a circle. They're all essentially, arguably, like Jesus' Sunday school class. They've been in Jesus' class for three years, and Jesus is really essentially leading his final lesson with them. And he gives them this new commandment, which many call the love commandment. And I just kind of wonder what was going through their minds. For argument's sake, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they looked around the circle and thought, okay, I guess I can love these people like that. We've been through a lot together. We don't always agree with one another, but I do think that we have seen the love of Christ and we see Christ in one another. I think we can love one another that way. And then I wonder if they remembered what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not so many months before. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Loving people who love us is not a concept that's difficult for us to grasp. We we get that. Now, it's not always easy to love even them. But it's a whole lot easier to love the people who love us than it is to love the people who can make things difficult for us, let alone the people who make us a little bit crazy, let alone the people who may hate us, let alone the people who threaten us or even declare war on us. When Jesus says, be perfect, He doesn't mean that we have to love perfectly as he loved, and that's a really good thing because we'd never get over that bar. But I do think Jesus does mean that we should strive for that level of love, that we have to work toward that kind of love, that we can never be truly content with settling for less than that kind of love. One of the ways we have tried to set that kind of goal in our Christian tradition is in the way that we approach Scripture. For more than 400 years, as long as Presbyterians have existed, we have ascribed to a guideline of scriptural interpretation that's called the rule of love. I'm always surprised how few people have heard of the rule of love when it comes to reading and interpreting the Bible. But the essence of that rule says that those commandments that Jesus designated as the greatest, that we must love the Lord our God, and that we must love our neighbors as ourselves, that those great commandments should also be our greatest and most important guides for understanding the Bible and reading the Bible. Therefore, if someone offers an interpretation of Scripture that is not loving... If, for example, someone were to claim that Scripture suggests something that is contemptuous or degrading or dismissive of another person who is a child of God, 
And the rule of love holds that that interpretation must be wrong. Wrong. Now, that love test even applies to how we read and interpret the Bible because the revelation of God in Christ conclusively establishes that God is love, that the Word of God is love. Then the revelation of God in the written Word cannot be understood in ways that contradict that love. Now, if all of this sounds too idealistic to you, if it sounds like something that can never really happen in the real world, then you are already standing in the doorway of one of the key challenges of faith. To follow Jesus, we cannot just pick up the things that seem easy or logical. We can't just love the people who are easy to love. And we can't just choose the parts of faith that fit neatly into our ideology, our politics, our job, any way that we have of working through the world, to walking through the world. To follow Jesus, we have to pick up the cross, the whole cross. And I might even say nothing but the cross. The only way to do that is to recognize that love in the reign of Christ is not a feeling. Love in the kingdom of God is not really a noun. It's not really a thing. In the reign of Christ, love is a verb. Love is something that we are called to do even when we don't feel it. And one of the many ironies of faith, when we do practice love, even when we are not feeling it, we often find ourselves feeling it as well. I once heard Tony Campolo tell a story about a pastor friend of his who was called to a really small church in rural Indiana. Arthur Forbes was a member of that small church. Arthur Forbes, God bless him, was an unattractive, unpleasant, and difficult man who smoked constantly and never bathed. He always came to church, but he was always late And he always talked through the service, you know, a little bit too loud. But perhaps his gravest offense and sin was that he never sat in the same place twice. (laughs) Arthur Forbes was not an easy man to like, let alone to love. One Sunday, Arthur wasn't in church. The next day, he called the church and asked for a visit. So the pastor went to visit Arthur Forbes. And when he knocked on the door of the dilapidated shack, no one came to the door. A gruff voice from deep inside just barked at him to come on in. The pastor opened the door and stepped into this darkened room. The shades were all pulled down. The only light was coming from an old TV set in the corner. It was filthy, and it smelled bad. And there in the middle of it all, sitting in a chair that had most of the stuffing hanging out of it, was old Arthur Forbes. I've come to bring you communion, the pastor said, and to pray with you. Forget the communion, Arthur growled back. Just pray. And it wasn't easy, but the pastor prayed with Arthur Forbes. And after that day, he forced himself to visit Arthur regularly. Every time he visited, the pastor would do a little something to help. He would straighten up. He would mow the grass. He would do some dishes. He even started going through the mail and helped Arthur pay some of his delinquent bills. And one hot summer day, the pastor came to the door 
and the normal gruff voice uh, just barked at him to come on in. And when the pastor entered the room, he noticed that Arthur was sitting in his old beat-up chair without any clothes on. It was, the pastor remembered, a pretty repulsive sight. But Arthur was as brash and as unapologetic as always. I'm hot, he said. And he demanded that he receive communion on this visit. He didn't ask. He didn't hope. He barked a command. The pastor forced himself to comply, but his hands shook with anger as he gave the bread and the wine to naked Arthur Forbes. The next day, the pastor came back to make sure that Arthur was okay. There was no answer at the door. There was no gruff voice. When he let himself in, he found Arthur Forbes' naked body lying in the middle of the floor. The pastor called 911. He called a friend. That friend beat the ambulance there, and the two of them pulled the filthy, smelly man up onto his feet. They revived him a little bit. They sponged him off as best they could. They got him dressed before the ambulance got there. Then the pastor rode with Arthur to the hospital and helped him get settled into his room, tucked him in, gave him a glass of water, said a prayer, and the pastor's head had barely hit the pillow at home when his phone rang, and the voice at the other end said exactly what he thought and feared that it might say, Arthur Forbes is dead. The pastor said he had not cried when his own father died, but as he put the phone down, tears began to stream down his face He said his crying turned into wailing, and his wailing deepened into screaming. I cried, and I screamed, and I howled, he said, and I realized I loved Arthur Forbes. I loved him. He had seduced me into loving him, not by anything he ever said or anything he ever did for me, but simply by allowing me to give to him what Jesus would have given to him. As he said goodbye to his closest friends in the entire world, as his betrayal was unfolding outside of the door, Jesus left those friends with a test of love a commandment deeply rooted in his undying love for them, for us, and for the world. I have said these things to you, Jesus says, so that my joy might be in you, so that your joy might be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Thanks be to God. Amen.